Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. This is George Grant's talk from the Stronghold Conference, put on by Trinity Reformed Church. His talk is titled, Extraordinary Ordinariness, and a video version can be found on Stronghold Conference's YouTube channel. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. If you do, you'll get the links sent straight to your inbox, and be the first to know about Stronghold 2022. So make sure you go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks. Well, good afternoon. I'm really impressed with all of you that actually stood in those lines. Uh, That's a manly thing to do, just to get some meat. Two passages of Scripture to begin uh, this afternoon's first session. Uh, First, from Isaiah 43. Hear this. Believe this. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers to spring up in the desert. From the New Testament, Matthew chapter 20. Now, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, so what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, But Lord, we are able. He said to them, well, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, when the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, Now you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so with you. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must that be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does greatness look like? What's a great man? 
Let's seek the face of the Lord and seek the truth of the Scriptures as we wrestle with this this afternoon. Father, I thank you for uh, these uh, brothers and sisters, these men and women that you've uh, called together for this conference. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, and I pray that you would give us the courage in this day and time of fractiousness and division and fear to not only do what you've called us to do, but to be what you've called us to be. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some men's greatness may be seen by how largely they loom over the movements that they launched. These are the Nebuchadnezzars and the Napoleons, the Caesars and the Charlemagnes. Uh, they're like the, the setting sun uh, that brightens the horizon but obscures everything but their own luminescence. But according to the scriptures, Greater men are they whose movements loom large over them, even to the point of obscuring them from view. According to historian Ian Murray, when Thomas Chalmers was born in 1780, it was about the deadest time in the history of the Church of Scotland since the Reformation. But when he died in 1847, it was about the alivest. The difference was almost entirely attributable to the Spirit's work through him. Chalmers would become the undisputed leader of a vibrant evangelical resurgence. In the coming years, he would serve as a pastor, a professor, and a publisher. He would establish schools and missions and organizations, Bible societies. He would write books on a myriad of subjects, from economics and social policy to systematic theology and strategic missions uh, extension. Now, at one point, he had the best-selling book in the world, outselling Sir Walter Scott and Jane Austen combined. He would lead an unprecedented church planting movement, and he would mentor an entire generation of theologians, pastors, educators, missionaries, writers, thinkers, scientists, politicians, and reformers. William Wilberforce said, the world has never seen the likes of a man like this since the apostolic age, and I dare say will not ever again. James Cothran said, he was that rare order of men whose students are their sons who draw to themselves by some magnetic power young men who flock to them from afar from the very ends of the earth and their lives are forever changed for it. 
Uh, William Taylor observed, uh, to the end of his days, he had around him a circle of loving and devoted students, all of whom were fired with enthusiasm, which they caught from his lips. He was not so much an instructor as a quickener. Other professors laid the materials in the minds of the students, but he brought and struck the match, which kindled those materials into a flame that burned with an energy kindred to his own. His disciples proved to be a veritable galaxy of brilliant Reformed Scots preachers, writers, and missionaries, which included Robert Murray McShane and uh, William Chalmers Burns and um, John Milne and Alexander Moody Stewart and John Urquhart and uh, Robert Nesbitt, Alexander Somerville, uh, Rabbi John Duncan, David Urt, uh, Alexander Duff, uh, William Sinclair McKay, and the Bonar brothers, John, James, Andrew, and Horatius, emphasizing uh, as he did, a pursuit of sanctification and a passion for evangelism at home and abroad on the mission field. These men came to be known variously as the evangelical prodigies, the St. Andrew's Seven, the School of the Saints, the Chalmers Bejans. They, together with Chalmers, helped to launch the modern missions movement, the modern Bible society movement, uh, they uh, uh, launched a church planting movement that was able to plant 500 churches, build their buildings, and establish schools for every one of them in the span of five years. They would be responsible for an astonishing burst of gospel energy, productivity, and profundity ever matched before or since. C.H. Waller claimed, the nearest approach that I know of in history of the church universal to the apostolic conditions of faith and living was what, what was to be in the free church of Scotland in its early days under the stewardship of Thomas Chalmers. In other words, in the short span of his lifetime, Chalmers was able to launch an extraordinary movement of reformational change at a time of decadence and decay and spiritual decline, increasing tyranny and the threat of the extinction of Christian civilization altogether. He was able to do so by discipling young men in the same good way along the old paths that he himself had trod. It was a very simple yet profound plan of directed Bible reading, strategic Bible memorization, and the encouragement of men to be men at home and in the wider world. So, why is it 
that hardly anyone in the Reformed or Evangelical worlds has even heard of this man. Why is Chalmers' name all but forgotten in our day? Well, simple. He chose. He chose to pour his life, his effort, and his energy into building men, not a platform. Into creating disciples, not a reputation. He chose to be a servant. G.K. Chesterton once said that the most extraordinary thing in all the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children who mind their businesses and tend their gardens and live their lives in faithfulness. For indeed, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I believe that there is something extraordinary going on here, that now that we stand on the threshold of the 21st century, precisely because the most significant players on the world's stage today are so fiercely ordinary and mostly unknown. As Chesterton points out, that irony, that paradox, that remarkable reversal is woven into the very fabric of God's good providence in the world. Because some people cannot comprehend that, they condemn it. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, Christ was once asked about the makeup and the composition of his extraordinary coming kingdom. He answered that it would be exceedingly ordinary. Jesus was passing through one city and village uh, to another, teaching and preaching on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Jesus answered and said, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. But once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you or where you are from. And then you will begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. Meanwhile, they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south 
and will recline at my table in the kingdom. And behold, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now this remarkable scene from Luke chapter 13, Jesus is on his way to his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And he's met by someone who wants to know how numerous the company of the saved will be. In at least two respects, his answer takes unexpected turns. Notice, in the first place, that Jesus transformed a theological debating point into a personal challenge. Do you notice that? He immediately pressed the practical implications of the gospel. Uh, the questioner asked about a vague and theoretical them. Jesus answers with a very direct and probing you. <laughs> that must have been really disconcerting. Uh, secondly, Jesus answered by addressing not the number of the saved, but their identity. The identity of the saved. This, too, must have startled his interrogator. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they were obsessed with their pedigree. They were the children of promise, after all. They were the heirs of salvation. They knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that they were in like Flynn. Their only question concerning the kingdom was, would God allow anyone else to taste the eternal reward? And if so, how many? Here, Jesus completely upends their expectations. He told them that their pedigree, their proximity, their privilege, their prominence would be of no assurance whatsoever of a place at the great banqueting table of the Lord. Instead, only those whom he knows and who know him can rest in confident security, and they, they may very well come from the, the very four ends of the earth, the north, the south, the east, and the west. I mean, think about that Bible map that is in the back of your Bible, if, if you actually have a paper one anymore. And imagine the geography lesson that Jesus was giving his disciples. North? What's north? Well, besides the horrors of the Samaritans, north of that were tribes of barbarians and Parthians conquered only temporarily by the Romans. To the east, it was worse. The barbarians of the east were marauding bands of brigands. To the south were the Egyptians. 
to the west, <laughs> across the Mediterranean, was the oppressive conquerors of imperial Rome. Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, guess what? The kingdom is not going to look like what you think it ought to look like. Of such is the kingdom. The, the truth is, the Bible is filled. It's filled to overflowing uh, with those kinds of illustrations of uh, the radical reversals of the expected of worldly wisdom. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3 that constantly exhorts us to take our eyes of what the world thinks is wise and good and true because it's all upside down. In the ancient world, for instance, there was this um, universal law. It was the law of inheritance. It was the law of prominence. It was the law of proximity. It's what's called uh, the the law of primogenitor. According to the law of primogenitor, universal among all of the peoples of the ancient world, the firstborn son got everything. Full inheritance, the full legacy, the full blessing, it all went to the firstborn son. Have you ever noticed how in the Bible, the law of primogenitor, the wisdom of the world, the, the common sense of every people group in the ancient world is turned upside down. Have you ever noticed that? Cain was the firstborn son of Adam. He was the natural heir to all privilege and promise. But it was his younger brother, Abel, who found favor in God's eyes. And it was his still younger brother, Seth, who inherited the family blessing and bore the Messianic lineage. Japheth was the firstborn son of Noah. He was the natural heir of all privilege and promise, but it was his younger brother, Shem, who inherited the family blessing and bore the Messianic lineage. Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham, but it was his younger brother Isaac who inherited the blessing. Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac, but it was his younger brother Jacob who inherited the family blessing. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob, but it was his younger brother Judah who inherited the blessing. Eliab was the firstborn son of Jesse, but it was his younger brother, David, who inherited the family blessing. Absalom was the firstborn son of David. He was the natural heir to all privilege and promise, besides having great hair. <laughs> but it was his younger brother, Solomon, who inherited the family blessing and bore the messianic lineage. Isn't it astonishing how often the Bible upends worldly wisdom? It's woven into the very fabric of it. It's almost as if God doesn't want us to miss it. <laughs> again and again, God demonstrates this basic principle of the kingdom. The weak in Abram's camp 
the overwhelmed the strong in Chedorlaomer's camp. The few in Gideon's army defeated the many in the Midianite army. David faced down Goliath. Elijah stood against Ahab. Daniel shut the mouths of both lions and liars. Shepherds and fig pickers were transformed into prophets before kings. God shames the wise. And he upholds the foolish. He condemns the Pharisee. And he forgives the publican. He brings loathe great. And he promotes the obscure. He makes his power manifest. Not in our strengths and our gifts and in our abilities, but in our weaknesses, foibles, and failures. Isn't it astonishing to you that the high water mark of the Christian life is not sinless perfection? It is quick repentance. God makes something extraordinary out of the ordinary. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This runs across our nature. So much so that oftentimes, even our best movements, we want to stovepipe to great leaders. And so we hold up the, the, the prominent and the articulate. We think that the badge of honor is a gargantuan-sized church where nobody knows your name. Is that the way that we're going to change the world? The Bible says no. The first should be last, and the last should be first. It takes incredible courage to walk away from the brass ring and lay hold instead of wives and children and doing the next right thing. This is one of the primary themes in Scripture. But Christ's contemporaries had a very difficult time comprehending it. And quite frankly, so do we. God's way of doing things continually catches us by surprise. God's ways are mysterious to us simply because his ways are not our ways. We are obsessed with prominence. We're impressed by fame and celebrity. And when little tidbits of it come to us, it's like, oh yeah, baby. <laughs> that was awesome. How many times have you heard someone say, oh my, if so-and-so were just a Christian, imagine what good he could do. Just imagine the impact that he could make. If just Jeff Bezos uh, just was giving to your little church instead of uh, pouring his billions into the sewer of this culture. We're wired to think that way. But we're, we're wired to, uh, to believe that God uses 
the extraordinary more than he uses the ordinary. But the Bible gives testimony to exactly the opposite. This is one of the reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees were baffled. If Jesus was the Messiah, why did he gather around himself such a rabble? The fact is, is that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He uses the weak, the afflicted, the common, the mundane, the foolish, the poor, the lonely, the broken, and the humble. G.K. Chesterton once said, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. (laughs) I love that. He wasn't actually advocating mediocrity. Far from it. What he was saying was, If a thing is worth doing, it's just worth doing no matter what. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing regardless of whether or not we have enough money or if we have all of the expertise or the credentials. It doesn't matter if we've got the right facilities. It doesn't matter if we've got the right public following. It doesn't matter. If a thing is worth doing, it's just worth doing. And if we plunge in and we blunder our way through it like every single mom and dad have uh, done since the history of the world. So be it. Because that's the way the world is changed. The great 18th century historian Thomas Carlyle wrote in his remarkable essay, Sartor Restartus, that fame is a bewildering, inextricable jungle of delusions, confusions, falsehoods, and absurdities covering the whole field of life. Such misworships and misbeliefs is the furthest thing from greatness and success and is, in fact, inimical to it. That's why People Magazine is a kind of Greek tragedy. It's just one sad story after another of Absaloms with great hair and magnificent teeth and shattered homes. Hilaire Belloc, in his critique of Renaissance French poetry, Avril, you see what kind of reading I do, (laughs) he wrote, fame is a toy. Its judgment is this, that most of those having done great things of a good sort have not fame. And most of those that have fame have done but little things, and most of them evil. Old men know this well. There is a vast difference between such mere celebrity and true greatness. Ordinariness is the greatest greatness of all. I have had lots of opportunities to speak in incredible places. 
all over the world, in stadiums, big churches, little churches. But you know where the most incredibly privileged place that I ever get to speak is? It's in this worn out old leather chair in the corner of my sunroom when my grandsons crawl up into my lap and say, tell me a story, granddad. It's in that moment that I know how to change the world. One story at a time. Now I look around this room and I am filled with hope. We live at a pivotal moment in history where it appears Everything is collapsing around us, and madness reigns, and yet, here you are, here you are, singing and reading and studying and preparing and fathering and mothering to change the world. Jesus tells us that his kingdom is rooted in a radical reversal of the common wisdom. He tells us that we may find the heroic in the mundane, not in the profane. We may find glory in commonness, not in prominence. You know the Tears for Fears song? (laughs) Everybody wants to rule the world. The last stanza reads... I can't stand this indecision. Married with a lack of vision. Everybody wants to rule the world. Say that you'll never, 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 never need it. One headline. Why believe it? Everybody wants to rule the world. See, that's what we think greatness is. Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. You know what Thomas Chalmers did in order for his name to be lost in history? He planned for those who stood on his shoulders to always be more visible across the horizon than himself. You know how Thomas Chalmers got lost in church history? He cared more about walking in the streets of St. Andrews and Edinburgh with his young men, opening up the scriptures, uh, teaching them the word of God, uh, quizzing them on their scripture memory verses, uh, challenging them on their vision. Uh, Brothers and sisters, that takes courage. Thomas Chalmers walked away from prominence time after time after time. He was the pastor of the most important pulpit 
in all of Scotland, one of the most important in the English-speaking world, in 1819, and he walked away to go to the poorest section of Glasgow to reach the least and the last. And then, uh, though he had offers to go uh, to any university in the world, he chose to go to St. Andrews at a time when St. Andrews was declining and had less than 150 students its endowments had dissipated. The, the college was about to close its doors. But he knew that he could attract young men who were hungry, who had a vision. And he went there and he raised up a battalion to go and change the world. When he was at retirement age, he walked away from the National Church of Scotland and its long drift toward liberalism and compliance with an draconian uh, in, inclined state to establish the Free Church of Scotland. He lost his home, he lost his church, he lost his retirement, he lost it all, but he knew that it was the right thing to do. He was willing to risk it all to invest in the common, in the ordinary. I don't know that we have a Chalmers in our day, but I'm praying that I'm looking right now at about 250 of them who are ready and willing to do the next right thing, who know that regardless of how fierce the battle may be, that the Lord himself will raise the banner over us and it will be his name that will be made great when the enemy comes in a roaring like a flood, coveting the kingdom and hungering for blood the Lord will raise a standard up and lead his people on. The Lord of hosts will go before, defeating every foe, defeating every foe. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu defend. A thousand fall on our left hand, 10,000 to the right, and yet he will protect us from the arrow in the night. Protect us from the terrors of the teeth of the devourer. Imbue us with your spirit, Lord. Encompass us with power. Encompass us with power. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu defend us. For the Lord is our defense. Yesu defend. God has called us to walk in common, ordinary callings. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Of this we can be assured. And so, once again, hear this word from Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers to spring up in the desert. May it be so, Lord. May it be so.
He's called us. He's called you for this moment. Can you believe it? Now go. Change the world. One story at a time. God bless you. Thanks for listening. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks.